This is Art House Roadshow, a podcast on film, faith, and mental health with your hosts, Kyle Myers and Hank Spaulding. And welcome back, Movie Nerds, to another episode of the Art House Roadshow. We are so excited to be here with you today. Uh, today we were planning on originally talking about Midnight Mass, but uh, due to some life circumstances, uh, specifically <laughs> my own uh, and um, and Kyle not being able to finish it just due to his own life circumstances, um, we're not going to talk about that uh, in depth. Uh, we'll we'll cover that eventually because um, I think there's some good like themes there. If you're if you're hungering for some perspective on that, we do have a review of that up. This will be a little bit more deep dive in some, into some of the specific symbolism. With both of us, you know, the review was just me. Uh, but instead today, just due to um, kind of a recent event, and, you know, it's not the biggest movie star. We don't really cover movie star events that happen a ton. But um, since this podcast is about mental health adjacently, that's in our subtitle, Yep. we wanted to cover um, the passing of Jason David Frank, who was the actor uh, who played in the uh, children's television series, Power Rangers, um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, if you know me personally, um, you know that the Power Rangers are really important to me. So I wanted to talk a little bit about him, and and we wanted to talk a little bit about mental health and, and suicide more explicitly today. Um, but you know, as our as is our custom, we want to start with our first uh, segment. And so, Kyle, what are you watching? Yeah, well, the only thing that I've been able to watch um, recently is Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Lord of the Rings, that my kids who grew up. Um, when they were smaller playing the Lord of the Rings Lego video game and uh, <clears throat> we we were watching it but you know these are extensive extensive material here yeah um, and and they were more uh, um, uh, more frequently watching the Hobbit series than mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings so we had not really gone back and done a full sit through and you know that's almost four hours just for right. that one so we were all pretty exhausted by yeah. that uh, the younger three, um, who had not fully seen those. So that was a good time, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Did you watch, I assume then you watched the extended cut with all that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't even, with the uh, fellowship of the ring, I don't even remember like what, what's new added material and what's not. It's more obvious to me in, in two towers in particular because mm-hmm. the opening, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah. I don't, I can't even, uh, I couldn't even tell you what was in the original cut versus the extended yeah, and it's one of those things that's really interesting now. Like ever since, um, I think the first movie, at least I remember, that did this, the um, was the final installment of the um, Hunger Games series. They did a two part for one book because um, normally they would just like we're gonna force this one book into a single movie um, mm-hmm. and make it like two and a half hours. I mean, really, the the Lord of the Rings trilogy could have probably used from being broken up into. A little bit more depth but um i'm sure those actors actors would have been really exhausted by the end of that mm-hmm. uh, they did it for the hobbit but that book that book did not need three movies. you're right <laughs> i think the last that, the joke i've heard now you can confirm this i don't know if you've read them or not but um the last one of the hobbit was like five pages like the battle of the five armies was actually just five pages in the book mm-hmm. and they turned it into a two and hour they sure two did and a half hour yeah movie. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting and everything. But yeah, I, those movies are great. I think really ushered in a new, like, for me, like a new kind of visuality of movies. Like the kind of visuals that they had there were like quite well, crisp. Yeah, because it was a, a real mix of uh, still very analog location oriented, yeah. uh, which was, you know, brilliant and all the New Zealand locations and all that, while also using very innovative digital effects. Um, and so a great appeal to me and even my, and I couldn't tell cause this is a, you know, Blu-ray we're watching on our television, but my, uh, daughter who's 16, uh, noticed the graininess in the image because they were still, uh, filmed on film. Right. Um, at that time when they were making them, you know, Lucas had not, uh, yet quite changed the game. Uh, in 99 it took so long to make those movies mm-hmm. but anyways but they were actually you know made with film uh, and then processed uh, and add digital added into it yeah uh, which is very different than than the Marvel Universe mm-hmm. and you it's something you would notice in the original X-Men movies um, as oh well, yeah for example but anyway so uh, that to me matters a lot just the like tactile texture oriented mm-hmm. um, experience of the movies 
yeah, with that, and then also uh, one of the last, I mean, that era of including the star, the prequel Star Wars movies um, and Lord of the Rings, one of the last great uh, era, I guess, being if we're uh, starting to categorize those mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. music scores, right? Um, such a standout, um, obvious, e- emotionally uh, engaging musical score all the way mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, as we've <coughs> mentioned before, I think with uh, Phantom Menace, uh, the score from that one, John Williams, uh, also great, uh, great standout music. And so uh, it wasn't very you know, long after that that I would you know, uh, blame a little bit the Dark Knight series oh, trilogy yeah. <laughs> for bringing in the Hans Zimmer kind of you know, droning kind of uh, score that um, did not really – uh, have anything expressive other than you know tension or something like that yeah. going on with it into more of the Nolan work and then obviously um, Marvel has their kind of intro music but you know they don't have a lot of other musical score recognizable score that's going on right absolutely and it's it's one of those things that they even they change up the Marvel score and people don't really ever notice or comment on it like with each phase which yep. is fascinating like but you're right like the the days of those kind of epic um, scores that kind of like I mean, they're just a part of culture now. You know, like you hear the sound, right. and you know immediately what it is. I mean, John Williams is a huge part of that. I mean, you could rattle off just from that period of like the the late '90s and early 2000s. I mean, you you talked about Star Wars already. I mean, he did the Star Wars first Star Wars scores back in the '70s, but the um, <clears throat> the uh, I mean, I mean, the Harry Potter films were just on the verge. Yeah, there. that's right. That's right. Um, you had these. Uh, granted, um, John Williams didn't do Lord of the Rings. Uh, Howard Shore, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, it's. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the, these these films have so many great. Uh, I mean, I even think Back to the Future to some extent. That score is powerful. Absolutely. Um, it's not as like you know as as <laughs> as kind of entrenched in terms of like you've got multiple. I mean, I, when I look back at that Phantom Menace score, I mean, the, just all the different kind of musical tropes that like reappear. I mean, it's a musical masterpiece on top of being you know part yeah. of like a really important film franchise um and like how the the movie score also plays a role in kind of dictating the tone and That's callbacks right. and things like that the love story between anakin and and padme even mm-hmm. the turn like you can see the turn at different points through the music that's right so yeah that's incredible yeah well i'm glad that you did that. are you planning on finishing it with the kids or yeah just- i think so um and we had initially planned for two towers this past weekend but it did not work out yeah. Um, so probably over Thanksgiving we'll get to at least mm-hmm. that one. Dude, have you watched The Rings of Power? I know I've asked you this before. I, I have not yet, man. I've uh, been kind of gauging opinions. Um, and from a Tolkien storytelling um, opinion, it seems to uh, really um, uh, seemingly do well in terms of expressing his vision, his mm-hmm. kind of structure, spiritually, morally speaking. Um, is very Tolkien. Um, I think the thing I'm been most resistant to, uh, again, just having talked about Fellowship of the Ring, is how uh, digital everything yeah. looks, um, and whether I want to, you know, um, endure that or not. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that because I've seen the specifically Two Towers, the the filming sequences for the uh, the siege of I'm forgetting the name of the the Forge Helm's Deep. Yep. Um, and it looks brutal, like with the rain. I mean, there's rain and mud, and you've got all these like extras and actors, stunt actors, dressed as these very big urukai. Which I mean, they, that can be comfortable, and and all of that with the rain and everything. And you've yep. got in the middle of it the main actors, <laughs> you know, swinging swords and things like that. It does not look like it's. I mean, it looks difficult. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, Vigo Mortensen actually, like he, like uh, either on the video commentary, I forget where I heard this in an interview, he talked about how grueling it actually was. And he felt like since he was kind of the title character in that scene, you know, in those sequences of scenes, he felt like he had to be that kind of strong, positive presence for everyone so they could get through filming. Cause it was like, yeah. it took, you know, hours upon hours to do. Yeah. Just because of all the shots. And, you know, like you said, I mean, that you've got the mixture of some of the, digital where you see the full army walking up to yep. Elm's Deep, but at the same time they they match cut that with these uh like you know stunt actors running up in their very like actual clothes yeah. or actual like physical garments so it's um i mean the, it gives a richness to the visual 
um, when you do it that way. And I agree. I've only watched a couple episodes. I plan on finishing it. I know I need to finish it. I have a friend who really likes it and telling me that I need to watch it. But like, there's a scene with this kind of ice troll, very digital. Uh, it just doesn't feel the same. Yep, <laughs> or like the right. scene of her climbing up a mountain, right? And I'm yeah. they're not going to be able to do that live action anyway, but in like the way that they sure. with New Zealand. But I don't know. I, I have the same resistance. Like that's all. I, that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, and I think it goes into uh, part of what I wanted to talk about today anyway is regarding, uh, so Dr. Hank and I were on, I was on a panel uh, that Dr. Hank had created for a justice talk here at our school uh, regarding pornography and human sex trafficking. Um, and part of most of it, we were you know just giving context for what it is and, and how pornography impacts the brain and, and how it's a avenue for sex trafficking and all those issues and and then just having real life um issues split up with gender on just how to you know talking about sexuality talking about those kinds of experiences Mm -hmm. um and so when this whole thing i had prepared for that that i didn't get into because it never seemed relevant uh moment to to do it is images in in general um, and how impacted we are by mm-hmm. those. And another uh, movie I had watched way earlier in the month, and it was a part of a trilogy from the 90s called the Three Colors Trilogy, Blue, mm-hmm. White, and Red, mm-hmm. um, which I would love to, to uh, dig deep into at some other point. But uh, they were showing it in 4K at uh, Gateway Film Center, and I was very upset by it because 4K, in a way, um, is so good at what it's doing in its digital transfer mm-hmm. uh, that I, I really could not pick up the graininess at all in the image. Uh, it almost looked like it had been shot with a digital camera, which is very upsetting to me. <laughs> um, very upsetting. And because the, the digital um, part of that, too, almost uh, it kind of changes the depth of field. This is very nerdy stuff, but this, mm-hmm. again... For me, and if you've ever had that um, issue with your digital television where you have the motion setting on that's, like, there for sports, right. but in a movie it kind of makes it look like a soap opera, the depth of field changes, and yeah. it's just more animated. And so then I'm seeing this in this 4K presentation of this great movie um, shot in film and all those things, but now uh, it almost has an animated characteristic to it as well. So very upsetting. Yeah. Um, and... The good part about that is is preservation, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, for these movies. Mm-hmm. But it seems like we've lost kind of the ethic of you know the presentation, what that means. Yeah. Um, and I only uh, say that in just parallel again to uh, everything in our life, uh, especially our digital feeds, uh, social media feeds, and the imagery being so easy to filter and to move it from our analog self and put a filter over top of it mm-hmm. um, or don't we don't even know what we're looking at how real it is or how much it's been digitally redone right and mm-hmm. so again there's a lot of fun you can have with those kind of things um, but at the same time it's really messing with like how we see things right mm-hmm. um, and, por- and and the connection to pornog- pornography is that like that's what pornography is all about right creating distorted uh, images that are not realistic that we're engaging with um, and that if we're not aware of it mm-hmm. you know we're just mm-hmm. going to like buy into mm-hmm. not only is this what it looks like but this is how it works and this is blah 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 um, and you're being exploited mm-hmm. right like it's everybody involved is being exploited mm-hmm. um, whether or not they're getting paid or whatever argument you want to make everybody's mm-hmm. being exploited and it's all right. transactional um, and it's all cheapened digital is cheap um, but then it also, you know, distorts reality, mm-hmm. right, in mm-hmm. every way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in anything you can think of, food porn or, or whatever images that are transactional out there selling you something, mm-hmm. you could, there's an argument that, you know, it's all pornographic in a way. Um, so anyways, that's my rant. On no, that. I, <laughs> no, I love that. And there's a, there's a really great book that uh, by French philosopher who is very old. His name's Elaine Badu, and he talks about the pornography. He calls it. Well, the book is called The Pornographic Age. He also has a book on cinema that's really interesting that you'd like. Yeah. Um, you may, I'm, I am positive you would not agree with everything he says, but yeah. it's worth reading. Yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, anyway, he has, he has that just that argument, too, like that this is the one he mentioned. is like in some sense, like everything that we've kind of commodified, like we're commodifying everything and in some sense turning everything into a pornography. Like we feel this kind of 
justification all the way down to like whatever image we present on even like social media itself has to be this kind of um, facade that yeah. we kind of put up in some sense where and that's the kind of like being we have to exploit ourselves in, in, in response so that's I think that's a really profound insight and something to think about for sure absolutely um, as we kind of move this uh, move into this like next generation then for that reason like I've resisted getting a 4k TV to be honest because I don't like any, and you expressed it purposely I've never been able to articulate it but I think you did for me just well like that soap opera feel um, yeah right I've never really liked that like I, I like the other quality that um, of it of a movie. I mean, it's funny. I mean, um, recently Marvel released this movie called Werewolf by Night on Christmas, on, not Christmas, on Halloween. Um, and it's fascinating because it's an homage to like old monster movies um, with a comic book property. And um, it's fascinating because it, it, like, they, I don't know if this is fabricated or if they actually shot it with film. Like, uh, uh, I don't know, like, what millimeter it would have been, but. Like that, you actually saw like the little yellow kind of like holes that you would see. Yeah. In um, sure. These and so it, it felt very much like an old kind of classic monster film, even though it was something very much came from a comic book. Uh-huh. And so I like I loved that, like just the experience yeah. of it. It was in black and white too, mm-hmm. uh, like much of the monster movies. And you know, I was, we were just talking before we came in here about, um, for example, the Invisible Man. Um, not the most recent one with Elizabeth Moss, but the original Invisible Man that came out, um, you know, many, many, many years ago. And how, like, there's been three different iterations of that story, and this goes back to what you're saying. The first one, really, is an homage to the classic book, which is meant to kind of um, help readers see the invisibility of those among us. Mm-hmm. And then in the it became a monster movie that was also, like, a, a kind of, a, which I thought was fascinating, like a... Uh, religion was seen as this positive ethical like constraint on science and i, I love that you know like it, it, it was able to ask science like hey should we do this mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. and so like normally like the, the roles have been flipped in yeah, our right. more modern like related like our more modern age is that science itself is it needs to be free from the religious constrictions i mean that was very much the opposite in the in that movie then you have the Kevin Bacon film, which was really just about this guy being a sex predator. Um, and then this last one, which was more of like a paranoid, like kind of like ruining this Elizabeth Moss character's life. And I got to say, Elizabeth Moss has played some really difficult characters. And I hope she's okay. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. She seems all about it. Yeah, That's right. She's, I mean, she's the, she plays Alfred, which is the, uh, in June, um, in The Handmaid's Tale, which those, that, that book is rough. And so is the, so is the show. But, yeah, right. You know, I, I just, I hope, I hope, if you're listening to this Elizabeth Moss, there's <laughs> some weird chance, I hope you're okay and reach out if you need help. We're praying for you. Yeah, we're praying for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so, um, yeah, that image, like metaphor yeah. is really appropriate to think through. Um, and with that, well, I'll just uh, pivot here to um, kind of the uh, little homage I wanted to do. And you can jump in at any point, yeah, Kyle. But we're going to be just talking about a little bit of uh, the Power Rangers and Jason David Frank. Because this is all very tragic. And I think that it's worth mentioning. Like we, I mean, there are other like celebrities we could talk about who have done this. But um, just with my connection with Power Rangers, I felt like this was a good on-ramp for us in terms of mental health. And I... I wanted to kind of talk about also some of the innovation that Power Rangers did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to I want to hear yeah just your connection with them originally also because mm-hmm. uh, for me um, my childhood was in the eighties uh, mm-hmm. He Man era and and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, mm-hmm. was probably the last thing I felt uh, really connected with when Batman came out, the Burton, Batman, and then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the year after that. I'm a big Raphael fan to this day. Oh, me too. And and anyways, um, yeah, so I missed Power Rangers completely. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I had moved on Mm -hmm. to other things, mostly uh, NBA basketball stuff at that time. Yeah. So anyways, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear like your connection with that Mm -hmm. and then kind of the evolution and and, uh, and anything else. Yeah, you have to say. Yeah, I mean, I'll kind of dip a little. This will be part autobiographical and part just like talking a little bit about Jason David Frank specifically. But um, I mean, I'll start with me. I mean, the the show. was a like my I first heard about the show my mom and this is something I got to credit my mom to because a lot of my my generation maybe your generation too uh felt this like um well actually do you consider yourself gen x oh yeah for sure okay all right so yeah gen x I'm I I think I'm considered more millennial um the uh there was a like a kind of in Christian circles a a a desire to restrict (laughs) whatever 
you watched, you know, so you can't watch this show, can't watch right. that show. And I didn't realize that that was a thing until I was in college. Um, cause I, I, you know, my mom was always one that like, cause she was, she grew up at a very restricted kind of household. Like she really wanted to see, um, the miracle, miracle worker, which is a story about Hel Her mm -hmm. Helen Keller and her parents wouldn't let her go see it. Cause at that time, you know, it was any movies were bad. And so, um, she grew up kind of with a chip on her shoulder and she married my dad who was very much allowed to do these things. And so she wanted to kind of, you know, give us, um, access to this stuff, not mm -hmm. completely free. I mean, she, there's things that she still just was like, I don't really think this is good for you to watch developmentally. But yeah, sure. Like the power Rangers, Pokemon, Batman, Ninja Turtles, like all that stuff I heard from people that they weren't allowed to watch because of, you know, more restrictive stuff. And so power Rangers, just like that, my mom got into it. And the reason is because, um, there's like three or four episodes in and, and it was already taken off as this huge, Thing. And my mom had watched on the news, and in California, if you know anything about the story of the Power Rangers, by the time they'd gotten uh, done with like episode four or five, it was so popular that um, they had uh, the cast of the Power Rangers go to um, Universal Studios for kind of like a meet and greet and a Q and A. It was their first one ever as actors, and there were so many people that wanted to go and take their kids in California that it blocked up the freeway. They actually just shut down the highway for like. Uh, miles and miles just because how many people were trying to get to Universal Studios <laughs> in Hollywood to see them and so my mom saw that and she's like well maybe Hank would like that and I remember she sat me down in front of the TV and she says you know I know you like Batman and Ninja Turtles um, you might like this and she turned it on and I was just instantly hooked because mm -hmm. um, it was this for those of you who don't know like the Power Rangers is a show and I mean I, I'm assuming most of you at least know what it is even if you never watched it it's this show about kind of teenagers who've been given these powers that kind of morph into these uh, what look like kind of spandex suits and fight villains. You mm -hmm. know, things like Mighty that. Morphin Power the Rangers. The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. That's it's, right. It's funny because the creator, Saban, like it was supposed to be just Power Rangers, but he said that it's got to be da 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 Power Rangers because like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's like, right. That was the other big thing around at that point, too. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so it's actually, people don't know this, like the, the Power Rangers show that we see in the U.S. up until very recently um, is actually a Japanese show called Super Sentai. Mm -hmm. And the, what the Saban did is he was, um, and this is a really funny backstory, which I won't get into, but briefly, uh, the first person to actually see the, the Sentai series and think, let's bring this over to America, it was actually Stan Lee. Wow. He wanted to make it a Marvel property uh, into a TV show and then into a comic, which... To this day, I'm just so sad that that didn't happen because mm. I think that would have changed kind of the, the the tone of it. Right now, Power Rangers is going through a resurgence because they have started a comic which is a little bit more mature, and it actually engages some themes that people really really like. Um, and it's just you know it's one of those things that I think it would have been really cool to 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 do that earlier so that we could kind of maybe develop into what it is today and sure. what we're heading towards. But anyway, um, so Stanley got shot down by his board um but later uh, a guy named Haim Saban who did a lot of tv shows at that time too he saw it brought it over found a found 20th century fox who said yeah we'll do it and um he has a shrewd business move i mean it's genius really because you're basically producing a whole show where you only have to shoot half the scenes because mm. you and he entered into agreement with the owners of super sentai and he brought like all the scenes you see them in their suits is are japanese actors mm. but they do the voiceover the american actors and so anytime you see them like switch and morph over it switches and so they're able to shoot a huge huge capacity of stuff so you know i um i uh i was hooked immediately and the biggest thing that came from this, and this is still true today, is like the toy empire. There's a really great show on Netflix called Toys That Made Us. And in like season three, I want to say, is an episode dedicated to the Power Rangers because that made millions and millions of dollars. In fact, in the first year, just with merchandise, Haim Saban made $1 billion. And that was in 1993. Like that's before that was like a normal thing to make that much. And so... You know, anyway, long story short, like it was, it was just a very, like, it was very culturally, like, hot in the 90s, 93, 94, 95, especially. Yep. Um, those were just like, they're just a part of the atmosphere. Like, every kid knew about it. Every kid had, like, at least one article of clothing or, or some kind of, like, contraption that had Power Rangers on it. And uh, it was just, it was kind of one of these really powerful things that was just a part of everyone's childhood that um, grew up kind of around my time. Or mm -hmm. at least, you know, they mentioned it. But, it's true. We won't talk about the Teletubbies. The Teletubbies, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I remember hearing about that, and it's because the same idea, like these multicolored yeah. kind of creatures in a certain sense fighting something. So, 
Um, it's fascinating because <laughs> when they brought it over, like the se- Super Sentai was actually more for adults in Japan. Um, but, and so there's like really adult themes, like the series that we call the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Um, in that series, like the person who plays the main villain is her name's Rita Repulsa in, in Super Sentai. Uh, she's actually an emissary for the devil who's been sent to Earth to, to kill all of the world's children. Wow. Um, because she lost her own, and in a desire to get her child back, she, you know, made a deal with the literal Satan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and the final battle um, with the Power Rangers is them defeating Satan. You wow. know, which is quite quite like the theme for a, a kids' TV show. And so they had to really tone that down, and um, like they took out all the scenes where like a Power Ranger punched someone in the face. Um, they didn't take out the ones with them kicking them in the face. I never really understood the difference, but it is what it is. <laughs> so they cast, I mean, one of the big things they also did at the time is that they cast a diverse, like they had a diverse cast. Um, and so they had like Asian American representation, um, African American representation, um, and things of that nature, which was a, a big thing in children's TV at this time. A lot of kids who really enjoyed the show really saw like the, for example, the black Ranger as somebody that they could look up to. Um, now granted, Saban did not think through the fact that he color-coded his mm-hmm. his Power Rangers according to their ethnic identity. So, like, the Yellow Ranger was Asian-American. The Black Ranger was African-American. Like, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but, you know, ultimately they switched it around um, when the original Black and Yellow Rangers left the show, which, yeah, that's, that's another story for another time. But um, they cast these five actors, very diverse, and they didn't go enough through the source material to realize that um, there was a sixth ranger that came in about halfway through the series. And they're like, oh no, <laughs> like now we gotta cast someone else. So they did this, another emergency cast setting, and that's when Jason David Frank uh. cast, and he actually did it on a, on a bet with his brother, um, who also tragically died years and years and years ago, 2001. Um, and he actually got cast for the role Jason David Frank did. He and his brother both auditioned for it. The requirements at that time was that the casting people needed to be able to know dance, martial arts, or gymnastics, like because they had to do a lot of action scenes, and so like a lot of the characters, like some of them were martial artists, and some of them were just like really great dancers, and some of them were, um, you know, another like some of them were gymnasts. So yeah. Like the Pink Ranger, she's a gymnast. Mm-hmm. But Jason David Frank, either at that point or shortly thereafter, like he'd won a couple championships like nationally for martial artists for his age group. So he's a very accomplished martial artist. And, uh, you know, my connection to it, like, I, I, lo- I immediately fell in love with the Green Ranger. My favorite color was green as a kid. And uh, I just loved him. Like, he was, he started off as an evil character who, like, wrecked all the Power Rangers and then ultimately was released because he was under a spell from the main, uh, main villain. And then he's released and he joined them. And so it was just this cool moment where he got to kind of, be a part of the team and mm-hmm. um and I, I you know it was it was really incredible like it was special for me like he he he's actually the longest like he was beloved by so many not just me um to the point where he's kind of been the longest running character on the show he's come back multiple times over multiple seasons but for me the power rangers always represented and i mean i didn't articulate this at the time as a kid but like they they were normal high school students um and there's an interesting story to be told here about like child soldiers in the Power Ranger thing. So, yeah. Because they were. I mean, they were. Addie Shanker, who um, is uh, known for doing Dread in a couple of very graphic movies, um, he did a like a Power Rangers kind of like um, like a really gritty Power Rangers show where he basically leaned into that idea of like what it meant for them to actually be like, you know, 15, learning like on the one hand, like how to drive a car for their driver's permit and also fighting life or death against like, yeah. alien space monsters. And um, but for me as a kid, like I was, I was a very lonely kid. I didn't have a lot of friends um, in elementary school. I was kind of chubby, overweight, um, and so like I, you know, it was, it was a positive message for me. Like those kids, mm-hmm. they they were just in high school, just like I was. But like when they morphed, they um, uh, they could do anything. They could be anything. They could fight evil. Mm-hmm. And for me, like you know, I, I heard this quote years later, but the um from GK Chesterton, like you know, you tell kids story t- tales about dragons not and fairies not because they don't know that dragons exist. They know dragons exist. They need to know that they could be defeated. Yeah. And for me, that's that's the mythos of Power Rangers. For me, like they always kind of started at the show and ended the show with kind of like a, a message directed towards kids that was specifically to build up self-confidence. It was very anti-bullying too. Um 
And, um, you know, it was just, it was one of those things that for me meant a lot. And Jason David Frank was right at the center of that. He was, he became the leader of the team. Um, and, you know, he just was that, that figure, that kind of consistency. Cause I also moved in the middle of those seasons and he was kind of the consistent thing mm. in my life. Um, mm-hmm. they started out before school, they were showing it at 7am, uh, because I don't think Fox thought it would work, but it quickly became their best show. So they moved it to the primetime slot which is after school. And so sometimes I would watch it before, sometimes mm-hmm. after I'd watch it. But, you know, it was just, um, you know, the other tragedy of this show is uh, Tweed Trang, um, who is, um, the, she played the original Yellow Ranger. She actually got cast with Jason David Frank because the original actor, actress who was, who was cast for the role said no um, after the pilot. So there's a pilot with a different actor who plays um, the Yellow Ranger. They got cast at the same time. And in 2001, um, she died in an automobile accident. Mm. Um, and she was, I think, on her way to a lot of success in Hollywood because she was she was cast in the movie Airplanes, um, which is, you know, comedy. Um, and then she was also in, in the Final Crow movie, mm. um, played this very evil character. Just it, And she was just doing really great stuff and just you know, tragically died in a car accident. It's the same year that Jason David Frank's brother died um hmm. things like that but he came back many times like he so he ran basically from the very first season all the way through the next four seasons which at that time they had five episodes every week wow and so that was just insane scheduling um anyway so it's just like that connection to it i got to watch it every day yeah it was a, it was a consi- like i said it was a consistent part of my life um and when he came back he was older and he played a different color you know now and so it's just all these things but he had a like sense like because there's there was this period where there's this huge drop off in interest in Power Rangers. Things have a season, you know, um, and there's this huge drop off, and um, the people that were my age started getting old enough to where they started organizing their own conventions. So Power Morphicon is like the Power Ranger Comic Con, and they have that in L.A. and Atlanta every year. Um, and they started inviting some of the actors back. All of them kind of spread out and did their own thing. Some had more success than others like the the pink ranger is probably the most successful actress she was in felicity and also flashpoint which was a tv show um uh, on i forget where but it was about a like swat and everything so she's a um she's a very talented actress and has since gotten to directing as well and directed some really cool stuff but anyway um they kind of had spread out and done their own stuff and slowly they started making their way back uh, to these conventions to realize that that fan base was mm-hmm. still there. They were just mm-hmm. older. And so he started like appearing at all these conventions and like his tables would always have these really long lines for people to take pictures and do autographs. And, um, you know, so he, he had a resurgence around like 2000, I want to say seven or eight all the way up until the present. Yeah. And 2012, they put all the seasons of power Rangers on Netflix. And so there's this huge boom in interest because people hadn't seen the show in forever. Yeah. Um, and there's new, no way new generation to too, yeah exactly and it introduced it to new that's how i introduced it to my nieces and nephews um i mean jason david frank was also just a very talented martial artist he was an, yeah, he was an mma guy too yeah. right yeah yeah he he, he actually is a trainer at least yeah oh yeah, yeah. he's a brazilian yeah he does brazilian jiu-jitsu like he's a black belt and that and like a whole bunch of other stuff too yeah and he's been the one that's been kind of leading the charge of like getting moving the the power rangers into something more adult um like the power ranger comic book he's been huge in that and there's been a really great stuff that he's done like the main villain now is a version of his character from another dimension and he showed up for that mm-hmm. so he's always been active he's always been encouraging he always mentioned that like he would he would do this for free for the fans and i always believe that i mean recent years he's had some trouble with i think some family stuff i heard back in august maybe his wife and him were getting a divorce um and he started posting years ago because he had a platform yeah. about mental health and he posted about his own struggles with mental health and um i knew it was bad i just didn't know how bad it was yeah um really for him and you know he had so many people who loved him you know and he was very kind even though like he's not perfect i mean he, he had people that didn't like him for sure in the show um but he was generous and like the, for example like he um he's shooting like a he was shooting a film i don't know if it's done or not um, called Legend of the White Dragon, which is his own riff on a Power Rangers theme. <laughs> and they, he used this little, like, um, small movie company called the uh, Bat in the Sun, which I'm mm-hmm. sure he would have gotten offers to do it with anyone, but he took a chance on this little 
group because I think he believed in them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you can check out his YouTube videos where he talks about his own struggle. Um, but you know, like, so I, I got the news yesterday and I, that's the thing that's been interesting. And, and Kyle pointed this out to me because I think that, you know, I've been struggling with this a lot. Um, and I followed his career once 2012 hit because I'd kind of run out of, like, I stopped watching and start be, stopped being interested in it. But when the show came back on, I was like, oh, I wonder where these actors are now. And, you know, I, I saw all the stuff and I've been following his career ever since. He started in a couple movies and he's done a couple shows, but this has always been the thing he's come back to for specials and things like that. And, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so on my wedding, I mean, this is the biggest thing, which was only a couple weeks ago. Like, my outfit was inspired on uh based on the green ranger i wore this button i had these socks i had the shirt under my regular shirt he's been a big part of my life and even for my wedding my sister um uh paid for a cameo which if you don't know that's where you pay celebrities to kind of give you a voice recording or a video recording like greeting you and he did that for my wedding just you know weeks ago yeah it was just really cool i watched that it was really great yeah and it was it was really long and he wanted like he wanted the pictures of our <laughs> of our wedding and and things like yeah, that for and, sure and so it was just it was it was incredibly kind and he, he took time for people and you know I, I, he had his he had his kind of darkness but you know he committed suicide on sunday and you know we lost that and i had to kind of take a step back from social media for a bit you know i'll, I'll post this on social media then probably step back for a little longer because there's just the i mean it's just the relentless information yeah right first i heard he, he had passed and i was like i don't know what happened and then the news that it was suicide on top of that was really rough. Close friends said that they didn't really know um, that mm -hmm. this was this bad. And so I, it's just one of those things that like I, um, I, I felt like it's worth talking about here because he's obviously very involved in film. I think he did a lot of good work for kids to build confidence. I'm not the only one that expressed that he was the reason they felt a little bit more confident in themselves. And yeah. even to themselves, like, I mean, he inspired a generation of people to get into martial arts. And uh, sure. I, I feel like that's that's not a bad thing. And but, you know, like with this this platform being itself about mental health, at least in part, I think it's important to at least talk about suicide in a certain sense. And and I've rambled on en enough. And, you know, Kyle here is, is the professional like licensed counselor. And I think that I would really love to hear some thoughts from you on this. And, you know, obviously he's very famous and people think if they're famous, they're going to be just happy forever. And he clearly wasn't. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, and he struggled. And so, yeah, I mean, get help. Again, yeah. Him. Yeah. And it comes back. I mean, I, I, it's good to hear that he had been sharing, uh, you know, some of his struggles mm -hmm. previously as well. So I think, again, going back to the, the images, uh, it's easy to project an image of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the things that we personally typically post are like the good things going on in life. And, yeah. um, and it can be very awkward to post something that's not going great. Um, but generally speaking, especially with celebrities, mm -hmm. um, we, we have uh, obviously strong connections. One of the things I like about pop culture is everything you described, your connection to the Rangers, mm -hmm. um, connection to him is like it's you know, part of a narrative and mm -hmm. it's part of mm -hmm. um, learning something about yourself, learning right. what's possible. Um, Rangers in Japan defeated Satan. Um, <laughs> just a great follow-up to Scorsese's silence, I feel like, you know, yeah, you yeah. Know, ultimately – um and but yeah but uh, so our connection is there whether you know we we like it or not but we we do follow and we are somehow uh even though sometimes we're connected more to the role to than to the person but we're still very interested in like what's what's the person doing yeah um and, and i do i followed uh chris cornell from soundgarden uh some years back committed suicide chester bennington from lincoln park uh, back when I was growing up, I was really into both uh, Tupac Shakur, who's one of my favorite um, people, hip-hop artists, um, political persons um, in general, I was connected with, and obviously Notorious B.I.G. Mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. cared a lot about uh, hip-hop culture at that time. And that was not suicide, that was homicide, but still, you know, the impact mm -hmm. um, is, is very, you know, you're, you're surprised how connected you are. Uh, to these people, to their stories, and, mm -hmm. and what they what they've given, you know, what they've expressed, what they've put out there. Uh, which today, you know, like people know that, and it, that's our whole language around branding, right? Right. Uh, is there, which is a, you know, again, sometimes a little weird, um, and and seems maybe artificial, but still, you know, we we uh, we're connected to that. So yeah, yeah. 
obviously Robin Williams uh, connected back to the oh, movie yeah. world and, yeah. and and so yeah looking at the mental health side of just you know for him uh, Robin Williams who had also talked about experiencing depression and a lot of those mental health issues for himself but for him suicide was related to a diagnosis a medical physical diagnosis he had gotten uh, neurological I believe and just didn't want to go through that experience mm-hmm. and, and take everybody else with him. Right. Um, and a lot of these, you know, I was looking at the stats online, and, uh, of course, the, the rate of suicide is highest among middle-aged white men, um, who your ranger fits, you know, that yeah. profile. Yeah, which is another, yeah, uh, conversation um, for, for white men in particular. Um, and culturally speaking, what that what that is, what that looks like, mm-hmm. um, and even yeah, even if you're a rock star, even if you're you know a uh, martial artist um, and beloved actor, whatever, uh, that's not good enough. Yeah. Right. And and part of it, I think, with middle age is that you know you battle it for for this long. You know, there's a point of exhaustion. And so with suicide, it actually happens most often when you're coming actually out of a major depression Mm -hmm. um, and you have just enough energy to do something about it and essentially say, like, I just don't ever want to go back there. And after I fought that cycle over and over again, uh, which is, again, even still interpreting because it's not like information left behind. But in in terms of what we know about it, you know, Mm -hmm. that's um, that is actually part of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so all that to say, um, for any of us, you know, that I, I work with students all the time, have been in mental health for 15 years, um, and we all experience some level of suicidal ideation anytime we're feeling overwhelmed and stressed, mm-hmm. uh, even if there's, you know, no intention behind it or no mm-hmm. real battle with it, but yeah. just the fact that, like, hey, I'm looking for a way out, a way to not be stressed, and sometimes suicide pops in my mind. Um, as a way to do that. And a lot of people are actually very disturbed, you know, the first time yeah. that happens. Yeah. Right. And so that's not uncommon. Uh, but obviously where it gets uh, really dangerous is when uh, you're actively making a plan to do that or thinking about how I could do that or when I'm going to do that is a whole different conversation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and not waiting till then, but even now building those, you know, support people in our life. Um, knowing, you know, people we can uh, talk to and lean on when when things get scary. Because, again, when you start thinking about that, that's also something that scares us, mm-hmm. you know, moving in that direction. Um, and, and, yeah, and so allowing for, um, you know, whether you're seeking professional help or you're having somebody pray for you or, or uh, just talk through it and be vulnerable and talk out loud, a lot of times that stuff will subside. Uh, quite immediately just by mm-hmm. saying it out loud as one of our students did the other day in the pornography talk you know as soon as I started talking about it it was like taking a knife out of my stomach I think right. that they said <clears throat> um, and can be a game changer you know completely it can be yeah yeah and uh, so anyways yeah I mean I think there are obviously lots of facets of all of that uh, especially with what we're talking about pop culture uh, mental health and the fact that even as we have quote unquote progressed with science and technology uh, mm-hmm. so intensely and so quickly um, that spiritually and emotionally we, we seem to be falling farther and farther behind. Yeah. Um, and so just taking time to reflect on that, right? Um, yeah. And and ask some different questions and and uh, turn in some different directions to help uh, you know build build a more solid, stable. Uh, spiritual, emotional relationship with yourself um, and with others where, you know, it doesn't get, um, it's not likely to, for the bottom to fall out, you know, on your experience. Yeah. And I think that's the the thing that's really hard because I don't don't know who his support system was. I mean, maybe if his, he was having marital problems, maybe the, that was maybe the thing that triggered it more in his life and what that like the fallout of that whatever that was i know his daughter was starring in this legend of the white dragon movie with him and i you know the thing that there's two sides of this i mean i'm more grieved for like the people who knew him and loved him more closely i'm grieved for all the fans who are kind of experiencing what i'm experiencing because i'm not the only one that he spoke into and and gave an encouraging word i mean all of the actors did um but every life is precious 
you know, in that way. Like, I think we all mm-hmm. make impacts on each other that we don't even realize. And um, it's just, I think it's hard because, you know, he doesn't realize, I mean, maybe he does, maybe it wasn't enough. I don't know. It's a, it's one of those things that like he, he did help. And, and it's just, I think that like the world is a less bright place because he's not in it. Um, I mean, selfishly on the, on the Power Ranger side of things, I mean, it just got bought out by Hasbro and they're moving it in the directions that I think he was trying to realize with his Legend of the White Dragon. So I, I mm-hmm. imagine he would have had a huge career resurgence in the next few years because mm-hmm. he's young. I mean, he's still young. And, sure. um, you know, the anniversary special for 35 years of Power wow. Rangers is in the spring. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, this would have been something that I think would have resurged, but you know, that's not even the point of this. It's the fact that the man, Jason David Frank, um, you know, is, is no longer with us. And it's one of those things that like, we, we wanted to spend some time talking about this because I think that, you know, suicide is something that we need to talk about more, um, just because people need to feel like they have an avenue to go to, to talk about these kind of things. And so if you've ever experienced those kind of thoughts, I, I hope that, um, I hope you talk to someone about it. Like Kyle said, I think that's important. Um, I -hmm. wanted to know more about, you know, Jason David Frank and his mental health when he posted it on YouTube, on his YouTube channel. But he he actually had this reality series that he uh, would film and use the uh, Bat in the Sun group to post that too. And it was really cool to get this kind of inside picture of his life. And he stopped doing that too. And I don't know if that's because he got criticism. Every fan base has its own toxic side, so I'm sure Power Rangers does too. I mean, I know it does. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know if he got criticism for that or if he's getting criticism for the thing with his wife or the criticism because he, he wanted to step away from Power Rangers stuff for a while and just focus on his own thing. But for whatever reason, you know, he just he felt a sense of hopelessness that even his closest friends, I mean, one of the other actors who texts him literally every day said they had no idea yeah. this was going on. And I think this stuff's painful. Yeah. Yeah. It's just suffering in silence. Yeah. I think that's the hard thing. It is the hard thing. Um, And yeah. Wow. And again, just thinking about, you know, the potential in in his, what you're describing, which again, we we obviously have limited real information. Um, You're going on with what, what little bit that you know, Um, but it obviously sounds like, you know, a really difficult time in his life, Mm -hmm. which is inevitable. I think a lot of us, um, are less prepared for things not going well in, in our life later Mm -hmm. on down the road and, and minimize the midlife crisis and, and these kind of things might contribute to middle-aged white man, uh, middle, middle middle-aged men in general, uh, Mm -hmm. rate of suicide. But he obviously died a real death. But when we come back to talking about narratives, right, harp on, uh, the more nihilistic side um, and how important it is to have a narrative for transformation mm. um, that, you know, he could have experienced a certain kind of death, going through divorces of death, going through uh, whatever kinds of criticism, you know, can actually become a death where, like, we move into grief. Like, right. I've, I've lost these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then something new can be born from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be a second half of life, you know, that happens that's uh, very different from first half of life. Um, and you get to experience that, that death and resurrection um, and, and you know, live that out. But uh, going through that is obviously painful. Like he was going through a version of death before he actually died. Yeah. Likely. Again, I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't have any real information. That's right. Um, but just again, noting like that there, there's something typical about that and, uh, and our narrative matters, right? The story we tell ourselves and what to anticipate about hard things in life, uh, when they happen and having the support and resilience to get through them so that you can experience new life in your own life. Right. Um, is a big deal. So not to preach a sermon. No, I, I love that, but yeah, I think I need to hear that in myself, um, and I mean, I think everyone does. Yeah. Like, like I, I, I think in my more pessimistic days, I, I quote the line from uh, um, Bucket List, which is uh, Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman. And uh, Jack Nicholson, I think, says something to the effect of life is like a series of disappointments and then you die, uh-huh. um, which does not lend itself to the kind of transformation <laughs> right. that you're talking about right. here. But I, nonetheless, I think that there's something about that. that I get that feeling quite yep. a bit. Um, and you know, the, one of my friends in a very wise, consoling message to me said this, he says, you know, this isn't a grief that you should have had to feel for decades. The guy was healthy. He was not on anything. Yeah. I mean, he was, 
I was at peak physical condition. I mean, the guy was an MMA fighter. Yeah. And so it's just one of those things that, like, yeah, that movement into opening up for transformation, I think, is important. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's a lot of stigmas around suicide, too, in terms of the faith. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think a lot of them are helpful in the sense of, like, leading to that place of transformation. I think it just causes more fear and then doubles back on that self-deprecating kind of depressive feeling sure. that suicide causes. And so, you know, it's just there's there's got to be a spiritual place to go as well Yeah, for healing on all of these things that isn't shame. Like, I don't think shame is the answer to grief. Um, yeah, no, and, they're opposites, yeah. Yeah, and so it's just yep. that's the hard thing. I mean, uh, it, and, you know, so much of this is it's hard to recognize. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for anybody who might be listening that, would want to know, like, if I have a friend, what should I look for in terms of their, like, needs and everything? Like, can I can I spot this? Is this something I can spot even? I mean, yeah. yeah. No, well, we talked about this at the pornography talk, right, um, around, yeah, if I have a friend who's addicted, how do I know, you know? Um, and so part of it is you're not going to know unless you've already created a culture where we can be vulnerable with one another. Mm. Um, and it's a stereotype around, you know, middle-aged white men being male um, in general, that there's a lack of vulnerability. Mm. Uh, and men are 3.88 times more than women to die by a suicide um, to further the stereotypes between, you know, men and women. Um, but the sense is if we're not creating a culture where we can share with one another, be open, we can pray for one another, uh, uh, allow for accountability, uh, in in our life in some way, then yeah, then you're not going to see it because right. it's hidden. It's like we're talking about. It looks like this guy's life was going great. Yeah. Um, texting him every day. Right. right? Um, and you know, and so it's almost uh, even more than noticing it in my friends, noticing it in myself and being willing to not hide it. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and being willing to uh, again go see a professional or. Um, take a step towards something right yeah. um or if it's addiction related you know an aa group anything where you're going to be with other people who understand your experience mm -hmm. or with people who can help you find those mm -hmm. people um is very important right and again back to my work working with women coming out of prison you know like the opportunity for them to uh come out of two phases of terrible you know life situations mm -hmm. Um, and, and again, literally be able to transform their life, mm -hmm. um, and find work and find healthy relationships and reconnect with children they lost mm -hmm. and reconcile relationships and, and those kinds of things, you know, like it is possible, right? We yeah. have to hold on. It's not just a false hope. There's real possibility in what God's doing in your life, mm -hmm. even when you don't want God doing something in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. He was a, I mean, he was also an outspoken man of faith himself. Yeah, I don't know how much that played into it. Um, I know that, and this is interesting, kind of like backstory. Like he was in his MMA career, he was he started or was a part of the Jesus Didn't Tap movement. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. No, I, I'm not. I don't support. <laughs> I don't support the stuff that goes along. But he had this forearm tattoo. Uh -huh. Jesus Didn't Tap. And I mean, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. But it was really born out of I don't uh -huh. know if you know the name Mark Driscoll. Mm -hmm. But he um, mm -hmm. he preached this because he wanted the guys in his churches to be more like MMA fighters and less like, you know, <laughs> sheep in a certain sense, which is a hilarious thing to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, not good theology. Reading, yeah, like, I mean, like explicitly in yeah. the Bible, right? Um, and right. so his MMA career had this, he had this tattoo done, like Jesus didn't tap. And yep. um, as he was like elbowing guys in the face, that's what they saw, you know, <laughs> But it, it was this. Uh, but he had this. Yeah, open, yeah. He had this openness to his faith that he he talked about it and stuff like that. I feel like he had. It. I mean, obviously, with the fall of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, I'm sure that had an impact on his spirituality because yeah, sure. he drew a lot from him. And yeah, with any time that there's a kind of absolutely. So I, you know, it's one of those things that like like I I know that he had these these thoughts and and he had this relationship and everything too with 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 God and. And it's one of those things that, like, I, I mean, when it, again, around suicide, there's just a lot of stuff that are ha can and will be said about this. But that hope, I think, is really important. Um, yeah. And and I, go go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, just say, yeah, I had a friend whose uh, father uh, passed away from suicide. He had had a uh, stroke and just gotten into retirement, had this major stroke, uh, and was basically disabled in a really bad way. Right. 
um, in a non, you know, uh, uh, incapable of engaging a lot and, uh, just became depressed from that. And then just want, didn't want to be a burden mm-hmm. basically. Um, at least that's again, the narrative that, w- that we're saying in part, or I am at least, and, uh, that I could, that I felt like I could see anyways, all that to say, like, I felt, I just felt God press on my heart to pray for him. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like after death. Uh, and that there, there is a way, because, you know, our time, our understanding of time is very limited. Uh, God's time is something completely different. Right. So, again, I, I really value um, the, the need. And even in an Anglican church, we pray, you know, for people every week who've already passed. And so just being able to pray, you know, for grace mm-hmm. uh, on them in this action that they took. Yeah. Uh, even under you know the umbrella of their faith, mm-hmm. um, yeah, to pray grace for them and and to not you know as the church be judging yeah. that action, but having compassion mm-hmm. and grace, I think is important. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that um, one of my favorite things um, that I've ever um, watched in terms of this idea, I mean, and I, I mean, obviously, it's what we were originally going to talk about today is the midnight mass, and this isn't spoiling anything because it's not the last episode. Yep. Um, there's a scene in that show um, where one of the main characters has been um, bitten and kind of transformed into a vampire and he's going to go tell um, this girl that he's kind of smitten with to, to try and get her to go like run away so that she can be safe you know and there's this moment kind of of like him going out there and like she wouldn't have believed it if she wouldn't have seen it for herself like him being set on fire by the rising sun and he went to a place where he couldn't run away and things like that and uh there's this beautiful scene, and again, I'm not comparing this moment of self-sacrifice to suicide at all, but theologically, I think there's this beautiful scene where this character, he'd been haunted his whole life with the, the death that he caused of a young girl while he was drunk, drink, uh, drinking and driving, and um, you know, he, he kind of closes his eyes right before the sun comes up, and you see him open his eyes, and there's the girl kind of whole and reaching out to him, kind of welcoming, welcoming him into... Um, like the kingdom for lack of a yeah, better term. eternity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's something really compelling about that scene. I remember getting emotional about it, but if you've seen that scene, you know, immediately they spoil it for you because they go back to the horror of this guy being lit on fire by the sun. Yeah. yeah, True. Um, but I, there's something powerful about that. That like that's a part of resurrection and the martyr, like the martyrs of the early, early church understood it this way. Part of the resurrection is knitting back together that which was so broken mm-hmm. in your life in a way that puts, wholeness where there was shalom yeah shalom yeah and um one of my favorite theologians and again this is a theological idea that you do not have to agree with but one of my favorite theologians carl bart he he wrote during world war ii and he's talking a little bit about suicide and he talks about how god is both the lord of the living and the dead hence the praying to even the dead even and he talks about how like god has the ability to judge the full spectrum of a life as opposed to a single action um, and that should be something that the living need to know <laughs> about those who, you know, commit suicide. That's, That's not right. even really something to encourage it. Right. It's just something for the living to know as to say, like, this is not your final judgment to make on this life. Sure. You know, and, and, and going back to hope, the last thing I'll say, it's, uh, it's actually from a very wise person in my life, my wife. <laughs> mm. uh, I, one of my main ethical things I talk about a lot is euthanasia. And she had some, like, childhood medical trauma that, um, was really dangerous and she was kind of on the like on the precipice of either living or dying pretty at pretty young age like 15 um, and she she interacted with a person on online on a post that I made about it because the person was mentioning that like you know there's the despair of knowing that you're gonna suffer and die like you should be able to go out with some dignity and she raised a point like with her own life she says for me I, I couldn't give up the hope that I would be healed because I didn't know what existed right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And for her, that was true. Like she like had this very rare thing where the, the vein from her, like her heart to her liver died. And so her body spread all these like, like really hairline veins all the way down to do it, but it wasn't enough. And so they needed to do a surgery where they took a vein from her neck and put it in her, in the place of it. And only one doctor in the country was doing it. And she didn't even know that that was the issue. Yeah. But she just randomly ran into a specialist at Vanderbilt Children's. He said, I read this article. I think it's worth talking to him. He goes up there, finds out that's what it is, and ultimately has the surgery. I mean, and that was after she had pretty much resignated to the fact that she wasn't going to find mm-hmm. it. And it's, and it's one of those things that, like, that's such a profound statement to me, not just in terms of, like, euthanasia, but in terms of suicide. You don't know what gifts await for you around that's the corner. Right, yeah. 
and I think that's true not only in this life but also in the next. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you know, like I don't know if you can hear this, Jason, David Frank, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll miss you, and I, I appreciate everything you did, and I hope that you found some peace. Mm-hmm. So, Amen. Any final thoughts as we're closing out here? No, that's good, man. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Well. If you are struggling with this stuff and don't know where to turn, um, you can also hit up our inboxes. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've, uh, we're here for you too. Yep. And so just let us know. Don't suffer in silence. Let's be vulnerable together, <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. That's right. So uh, as we're wrapping up here, that'll be about it for today. Thank you for joining us. We know this is a little bit different um, than what we normally do, but uh, on the horizon, you know, we eventually will be covering a midnight mass. But in Christmas and Advent season, we wanted to cover two films that are like Christmas adjacent but I think are really good one will be Lady Bird that will be the next episode that you can expect from us and the following one will be on The Godfather that's right uh, the classic film and so uh, we hope you'll join us for that and uh, we hope that you will leave us a review uh, let us know what you think that helps other people find us as well uh, but until that time be well stay safe and we'll see you here next time on the Art House Roadshow thanks guys and that's a wrap thank you for joining us on Art House Roadshow we'll see you next time